You're listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to the Regeneration Rising podcast. I'm Taylor Mulia, and hope everyone had a lovely holiday season, jumping back into the work here in January. We are so excited here at the New Agrarian Program. Last fall, we received a three-year beginning farmer and rancher development program grant to help fund our program continuing, but also some really exciting educational opportunities for any folks in our community. So, I'm already starting to make some plans and getting so excited. So um, just keep an eye out on our in our newsletter and with this podcast to hear more about um, what we got going on. So with that, today our two guests are Chase Hetler and Jesse Hook. They are were both Carbon Ranch Initiative interns here at the Kivera Coalition. And Chase is an undergraduate student at Colorado College, while Jesse is a student at Bard College completing her MBA in sustainability. I had the privilege of working with these two ladies in the last year as coworkers, and they're in another program, but got to catch up and get to know them a little bit. And I was looking forward to diving a little bit deeper into what their projects were, and I, I got the opportunity to do that. And we talked a lot about academia and bringing academia into ranching, but also like how do we put value into all of the knowledge that the ranching community already has. And so I think we had a really beautiful conversation and I hope you enjoy. Jesse and Chase, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I would love to jump into a little bit more about each of your backgrounds. So Jesse, I guess we can start with you first. Can you tell us yeah, a little bit about sort of how you're coming into this internship? Where did you grow up? How did you get interested in agriculture? Yeah. How'd you get your start? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks. I have a bit of an unconventional background. Currently, I'm an MBA student focusing in sustainability and rural economic development. So agriculture plays a really important and central role in rural economic development, especially here in New Mexico. Um, I grew that interest through working in conservation and fire mitigation work with AmeriCorps and Rocky Mountain Youth Corps, actually, here in Taos, which is a job I fell into after teaching English abroad and after being a wilderness guide. And yeah, just kind of have bounced around from doing education to conservation to why not go get a business degree <laughs> and, and focus on rural economic development. So that's a little bit about me. Right on. And did you grow up in New Mexico? No, actually, I grew up in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. So 
quite a different, quite a different context from then to now. Yeah. And what brought you to this internship? Were you just out there kind of looking for things that were based in New Mexico itself? Or what drew you to Kiviera in particular? I actually went to a um, a showing of a documentary looking at acequias in northern New Mexico. And there was a panel discussion afterwards and the executive director of Cuvira Serra spoke to it afterwards and we were chatting after the documentary and I was saying I was interested in compost and circular economy and waste reduction. And she said, oh, well, you should look into our internship for this following summer. So kind of all started with a documentary screening at the, at the TCA. Very cool. Very cool. And Chase, let's jump to you. Uh, where where do you call home? Um, how did you get involved in agriculture and conservation and sort of how did you end up at this internship? Yeah, so I'm a little bit younger than Jesse and in the newer parts of my career and academia. Um, so I'm an undergraduate student at Colorado College studying environmental studies and political science and I'm very much interested in the intersection of policy and agriculture. And as I've been getting farther along in my degree, I've focused that toward, more towards an international stance more recently. But I found Quivira through work on urban farms, actually, in my hometown of Chicago. And I was working on urban farms all throughout high school. And I did some work with hydroponics as well. And I was touring a ranch up in northern Michigan and he goes to the Regenerate Conference every year with Quivira. And so through those connections in Chicago and the Midwest, I actually found out about Quivira and just ended up applying online. Very cool. And yeah, for the listeners, I just wanted to kind of clarify. It's a little confusing that the term internship and apprenticeship. We've been doing a lot of episodes on the new growing program apprenticeship, um, which is very different from a Kivira internship. So these two ladies are working within the organization, Kivira as an organization itself and not um, an apprenticeship. So kind of a an important distinction to make. And I wanted to start too uh, with Jesse, your project. I would love to, you know, give you the mic, tell us about your internship project. Um, what did it set out to do? What was the question that you were tasked with answering? Yeah, so I actually had the pleasure of working on two projects to write two white papers, so formal reports. One was on the economics of rural dryland composting and looking at the potential of rural compost markets. So we were looking specifically at Taos, New Mexico, and the potential to adopt composting systems, specifically looking at an aerated static pile system, what those would cost in terms of the upfront costs of materials, but also considering labor and certification, and what were the potential um, revenue streams that you could get from compost. So that was a really fascinating project and um, one of the two. The second one was looking at uh, different soil amendments, organic soil amendments in the context of rural ranching in New Mexico. So we compared, and I'm currently writing this white paper, very different, but also similar in some ways. We're comparing the application of biochar, compost, and then utilizing bale grazing 
um, as ways to amend soils on dryland ranges. So that project's really interesting because we are looking at uh, a few different values and potentials associated with organic amendments in the context of dryland ranching. We're looking at it from okay, what would it cost to actually implement these organic amendments? And then what are the savings and potential value generators of utilizing those amendments? And it was really fascinating. I didn't really know a lot about ranching before. And so I learned a lot through the process. And I also didn't know too much about bale grazing or biochar. So it was a lot of fun to compare all three and and look at what the potentials could be for, for ranchers and rural economies. Very cool. And it sounds like almost like you're doing research. Tell me more about like, what is a white paper? Is it considered research? Is it considered publishable? Yeah. What's the difference there? Yeah, I would say um, it is not research and we will have it on our website, but it's not something that would go in a scientific journal because we did take scientific soil analyses. We did do some measurements. Eva, who's a part of the Quibir team, headed that up. She's PhD and has a lot of experience in that realm. But this was more of a qualitative plus quantitative analysis. So kind of getting an overview of what was the experience like for ranchers? What was the time it took? What were the tools you used? As well as looking at what were the changes that we saw with the three different amendments throughout three different ranches? What did that change in terms of microbial diversity? What did that change in terms of water holding capacity? So we were able to get some numbers on that. But in order for it to be research that could be published in a scientific journal, it is my understanding that you would have to have more data points and more formalization for that to happen. Right. Because you were looking at, you say, three producers in the second project you were working on. Was it the same for the compost one, too? How many producers did you work on for that first paper? Yeah, compost, we actually worked with one producer, I guess you could say, our our stakeholders that we collaborated with for the post markets in rural New Mexico project were the Taos Land Trust and then Taos County Solid Waste. But it wasn't the same in terms of going out somewhere, applying compost, seeing what the change in, in soil microbial diversity was like. It was more, okay, what is the interest? What are the times? What are the tools? What is the potential? And we mostly did that analysis through um, education and interviews, as well as compiling costs. So go in a little bit more about what your methods were, like what exactly did this project look like and what did you learn? It looked like a lot of conversations. <laughs> it looked like a lot of conversations, especially for someone such as me who didn't necessarily have a scientific soil background <laughs> or um, a ranching background. So it was, these, both of these projects required a lot of curiosity, a lot of conversations, um, and a lot of notes, and um, as well as research in terms of, okay, how much does a Kubota tractor cost? <laughs> and how much are is compost going for in the like general market per cubic yard? Um, the answer we came across in the state of New Mexico is $100 is how much you can get for quality compost, at least per cubic yard. So the process looked like a lot of questions, a lot of conversations, and and some research, some Googling. <laughs> so it's kind of like you're 
you're just doing the legwork of really getting into the nitty gritty of how much does every single thing cost for this to happen? And what are we asking producers to pay for if they are going to apply compost to rangeland or if they're going to make their own? Does that even make sense? Because it feels like it might make sense when you're doing it and you're like, this is great. I'm making it on my own ranch, but potentially you could be losing money by doing that. (laughs) Or potentially it could be an awesome opportunity. So yeah, what did you find? You're really not working with a whole lot of data points, but what are, I guess, some surprising takeaways of your project? Well, one thing that I really want to highlight and underline was that, and something I think was really important when it comes to sustainability work, is that you have the financial costs and the financial like revenue that you can generate through these systems, but there are also values that maybe aren't necessarily measured through money and economically per se, but you can have values generated through compost application, such as increased forb growth or um, different organic matter growth. And you can also have higher nutrient content seen in what you're growing. So there are a lot of values that it's really hard to quantify when it comes to quantifying with money and simply with money. That was something I found interesting. We had a lot of great observations from our producer stakeholders. One that I found fascinating was that one of our rancher partners noticed that cattle were more likely to be drawn to the places in which we put the amendments. So one could say that was because maybe the Forbes and the growth there had was more appealing to cattle. Exactly why? Who knows? The smell, the taste, the nutrients. But that was something we really found fascinating is, is that where we put soil amendments was almost like a magnet for cattle. So that was fascinating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We also had a lot of producers very wary of the costs, especially when it comes to labor, of actually implementing these amendments in their practices. Because it it takes a lot of time, and ranching is already a business that is short on time and short on people. So that was something that they were feeling a lot of stress around of, okay, sure, compost could be really beneficial for this land. Biochar could be really beneficial for this land. But do I have the resources to invest in generating my own compost or even taking the time that it takes to place compost? Because compost is not a cheap amendment. So there's potential to reduce those costs through on-site generation. But even then, you have the labor and time considerations. So most likely to be adopted across the board between our three different producers uh, was the bale grazing. And that's because it kind of provides three different values when implementing that into your practice. It is helping feed your livestock, so your cattle. We had one producer use goats because she works with open range feeding. And so cattle weren't even accustomed to the idea of a bale. So it can provide feed. It can also help direct herds. So if you need a herd to go in a certain direction, most likely they're going to follow the food as well as, of course, the soil amendment. So a lot of, a lot of ranchers were excited about the potential of, of bale grazing out of the three. What did you learn about the process of designing how you're going to get this data and how you're you know, just designing like what is 
this project going to look like? like? What did you learn about the process? Was there anything that you would have changed if you did this again? Or any big lessons learned about working with producers and, and getting this kind of data? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's funny because when I started the summer, I had an idea for what this analysis was going to look like. I was going to compile all the costs of their ranching operations and see what the potential is for their savings down the line based off of the scientific analyses we saw with change in Forb growth, for example. But with our limited data and with such varied experiences, it was hard to get so concrete, which was okay in the end, I think. I mean, economy and ranching is very contextual. And so what we ended up taking with our our varied and nuanced information is we created three different profiles for the producers. So highlighting the three different case studies and aligning them from similar subjects. So what was your experience? What were your qualitative observations? And what were the costs that you had to put forth? So how much time did it take? How many people were involved? Did you use shovels? Did you use a skid steer? Did you use a rake? (laughs) That kind of thing. So we were able to align the experiences, although very varied, very different, um, under some some similar umbrellas. And that was that was really great. Because I think in the end, what we did with those three case studies is we reflected amending soils can look very different depending on your context. And the results you see can look very different depending on your context. But despite the different context, there were some general themes that we saw throughout these three different case studies. So it was it was a fun process. It was definitely a great lesson in how you maybe initially approach something and plan for something to happen. Is it usually what the end result is? And 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 that was that was a fun adventure. Awesome. Well, we'll come back to you in just a second. Now we'll sort of shift over to Chase's project. So, Chase, um, what did your internship set out to do? So, just like we asked Jesse, like what were the questions you were trying to answer? What was the purpose? So my project was also a white paper and it was a deliverable for the Western SARE grant. And for this grant, it included an ecological component that will actually hopefully be published. And I worked more on the cost analysis side, which is the other deliverable. And similar to Jesse, it set out to analyze the costs and benefits in a loose way. I wouldn't call it a formal cost benefit analysis but analyzing what costs and what are the practical implications of implementing the project that we did in the grant. And that project focused on adding organic amendments to erosion control structures. So we had five different ranches and we put rock rundown erosion control structures, pretty small ones on not very steep inclines. They were more just layers of rock on places where there had been erosion and runoff happening. And then above that, We either put control, which had nothing, or mulch or compost. And then some of them had the addition of grass seeds on top of it. So over the course of a year before I was with Covira, there was a monitoring period and all of the ecological data was gathered from that. And then when I came in, my main job was sourcing the some of the economic data as well as gathering qualitative opinions from the producers that we worked with and 
compiling this cost analysis. Very cool. How many producers did you work with? We worked with five ranchers. Five ranchers. And these are all in northern New Mexico? Not all, not all in northern New Mexico. They're scattered throughout the state, um, all the way down from the Texas border up to north of Taos even. So all over the state. And one thing that we noted in the analysis was the different topographies and climates, even within the state of New Mexico, which is obviously very arid in general. There's still a lot of variance. And so something we found that was really important to include was profiles of each of the different ranches so that someone looking at this on the Kavir website for guidance on their ranch or implementing a similar project may have guidance on which one to follow and which ranch is most similar to theirs. So you were you were kind of handed some data and then did you take any data yourself? You it sounds like you did a lot of the cost research and all that kind of stuff. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so that was a big part of the beginning of the process and like Jesse said, talking to people was one of the biggest things I did and the most helpful way to gather information. I conducted some interviews with all of the producers and that gave me insight into how each ranch went about setting up the structures and sourcing labor and costs and how much Quivira supported them in implementing this project and what it would be like if Quivira wasn't with them. I also wanted to see if, practically speaking, they would want to implement this on their own without someone coming to them and proposing this idea. So yeah, overall, I gained a lot of really great qualitative information from those interviews. And the other way I sourced my economic cost data was through just research, honestly, and going through and looking at different places that all sell mulch and looking at the running rate for mulch over the last two years and trying to compile tables of mulch and compost and other tools that were used in this process to create maybe a standard. Obviously, it can fluctuate and the place that Quivira purchased the materials from isn't representative of all of the costs at play. And then I made some other estimates, including, for example, the price per gallon for gas um, at the time of purchased. And then also at the two years later, now the price has gone up. So looking at how that's changed and turning it into a number that is more representative of someone using this in the next year or so. Oh, very interesting. And I, I think too, it's it's worthwhile mentioning that, you know, Jesse's two projects and yours, Chase, is that like the the purpose of these projects, I think, is to is to demonstrate these different soil health techniques on rangeland. You know, we have grazing techniques, but it's just really cool. I I think we, we just didn't mention that at the top, but Jesse, the the idea of adding these amendments to rangeland, hopefully capturing some carbon, hopefully introducing some microbial diversity, and hopefully increasing the, the nutrients in the soil. And Chase, too, with yours, it's a little different because these are erosion structures. Um, what was sort of what's the ideal outcome if you have this like you know, we've got an erosion structure that's slowing down the water. Then we've got mulch and seed. Like, what it, what do you want to see? Like, what is the ultimate goal of this kind of, just this kind of project in general, doing these structures? Quivira has already produced a lot of guides on different erosion control structures and when to use them and how to build them. So I think the next step for Quivira was analyzing how can we make them more effective and what can make them better. And so... The main thing for increasing the productivity of the structures is adding plant establishment. And to do that, the idea was that compost and mulch would add that organic matter in as well as retain water. 
So not only is it slowing down, but it's sitting in this fertilized, so release fertilizer and has seeds on top of that. And the goal was that eventually the seeds would germinate and establish grass, which would just further slow down the water and hold the soil in place with roots. The ecological outcomes of that were not quite what we expected. So it's interesting to look at the different limiting factors, especially in New Mexico, where dry areas are a huge factor and seasonality and everything. So yeah, that was one of the big questions that we were trying to answer is how effective are adding these fertilizers in these climates and in this context. So we found that overall erosion control structures with mulch were the most expensive, but that has to be related back to the overall effectiveness of mulch on those structures. So that is something that Eva, who has also worked with Jesse on her projects, is focusing on right now as we kind of wrap up this project in the coming month. But besides that, we found that the erosion control structures themselves without any organic amendments do help in slowing down the water, which is was part of our hypothesis and why we chose to have the research question that we did. But besides that, it looks like the compost and mulch are not that much more effective, but do have an added material cost. So from there, I'm working on analyzing what those added material costs mean to farmers, especially when they're not applied on broad scales, like Jessie's working on with um, her organic amendment paper. But mine is very small scale, localized application. And the question becomes, okay, they could use this compost pile elsewhere on their ranch. Why not just apply it here on a very small scale and see what happens? And what's the risk with just putting a little bit of mulch or compost down? You're saying you you did a lot of research and interviews. What about this process um, worked? What didn't work? What did you learn about how you crafted, how you're going to find this information? Like, what would you do again um, differently if you had the chance? Yeah, speaking directly to the interview process, I felt like they were extremely valuable, especially for me coming from the city and not having a lot of ranching experience specifically. It really helped me just frame everything in my head and the process of gathering research and spending the money on materials for this project before I was involved in it. So that insight and just step-by-step review of the process was really helpful. And additionally, just making that face-to-face or computer-to-computer contact was really helpful in knowing who I was talking to and forming a personal relationship with these ranchers. And I think that's part of the goal of having these deliverables added on to these grants because it perpetuates this relationship with ranchers and keeps it going and lets them know that their opinions are still valued, even though we're doing more scientific research. It's really crucial for Quivira to include these interviews in the process because they add the qualitative and personalized research in, in addition to the quantitative ecological data. And additionally, it was specifically really helpful to have these interviews for data collection in the sense of labor costs, because a lot of the different ranches did the process of building the structures and adding the amendments very differently. For example, some ranches had 20 people in a workshop in one day, and everyone just was very enthusiastic and got it all done in one day. And that was something that Kavira helped organize. And in other times, it was just family members and friends and the community who came together to do that. And other times it was 
a step-by-step process over several weeks where, where whenever the rancher had a couple of hours to spare, they would go out and organize the rocks. And that re- required training on how to accurately spread the rocks in an effective way and just a lot of research on their end on how to like start this process and work with Kavira through this. Yeah, that's very cool. And it's cool that you guys both didn't really have a super strong connection with the ranching community in New Mexico. And this was a great way of serving them and and helping them answer questions that perhaps they've been wondering about to the best of your ability. And also just like bridging that gap between academia and production agriculture. Jesse, do you have any big takeaways about agriculture that you learned from this project? Like, is there anything that you see differently now? Well, if I can touch on that bridging the gap between academia and agriculture point, I found that really fascinating. There was one of our producers for the ranching case study that was saying, yes, I believe bale grazing to be more likely to be adopted for the ranching context as it is right now. But he also recognized that he sees the potential of compost and biochar and potentially compost tea or biochar inoculated by compost to be fascinating for research. Um, So that was one producer commenting on that bridging the gap between ranching and academia. And then another producer out of our three was saying, yeah, I think that compost tea could be something really fascinating, potentially because it addresses one of the issues that you brought up, Chase, of water and the um, erratic nature of, of water and precipitation in New Mexico. And that was another thing that was really fascinating for this project was a lot of soil amendments to like for us to see efficacy with those soil amendments, you have to have precipitation. And in many of our case study locations, precipitation has been changing in terms of its consistency at time of year and how much is falling and when. So that was a really, really fascinating component and something on the minds of all producers. In terms of what I learned about agriculture, Lots. <laughs> As I said before, I didn't know a lot about ranching prior to this project. Um, but I think it, it affirmed something. I had done some woofing, the World Organization of Organic Farmer Organization, um, in the past, uh, which was my introduction to farming and have farmed with my neighbors here in Taos off of an acequia we live on. And I think something that I've seen in Taos, which is a very agricultural place, as well as through those experiences that people nowadays, especially don't only farm for the economic value and they don't only farm for the vegetables that you may or may not get at the end of the season or for the the cattle that you get to enjoy at some point. Um, There's also the inherent value in lifestyle that comes with farming and being connected to land and being connected to the surrounding ecosystem that is so important within farming. That was something really neat to hear and to see was that producers and people and organizations like Quivira are motivated to find ways to make that culture and that lifestyle resilient. While the rest of the world is worrying about data 
and satellites and, and electric vehicles, there are still people who are looking to the soil for answers and inspiration. Um, and that was that was really neat to see. Yeah, that's so powerful. I feel like the, an MBA, you're just you're really trained to in the pinhole of the economic perspective and it's so interesting to just hear that. I think all MBA programs, like that's the point is to teach you that perspective, but it's cool that you pulled something else out of it. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I yeah. forgot there, there are other values in life. Besides right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, money is a language that we've all been taught at least yeah. in the U.S. to learn or at least to respect and to base our decisions off of. But one plug for the program I'm a part of, it's Bard's Bard College's uh, MBA with a focus in sustainability. And the whole program embeds sustainability within decision making. So yes, look at the finances, but use them as a way to back your case for sustainable measures. So use finances if you can to make a case of why it makes sense to incorporate organic amendments, for example. So I think sustainability and other inherent values can be included in that conversation. It's just about making the space for it and giving that part of the conversation validity. And Chase, what did you, what were some takeaways that you um, received just about agriculture in general and about ranching in the West? So how did your view on agriculture change? One of my big takeaways was how important area specific research is in academic research in agriculture. I was doing some background research on erosion control structures around the country, just as a reference point for where I should jump off of. And I noticed that there were not a lot of other arid climates represented in that research, and their outcomes were also very different. And it really allowed us to discover these new outcomes with similar structures. But it also led us to maybe have hypotheses and expectations that were slightly incorrect because our information prior and our background knowledge in terms of the research done already is just in a completely different climate and area. And I think that speaks to the challenges that ranchers face as well, especially in New Mexico and Colorado and Texas, where it is more arid and there are these struggles that are unique to these arid areas in terms of economic hardships and community hardships as well. And I think although there's a huge divide that I've also noticed, as Jesse pointed out, between academia and the rural communities that are ranching, I also notice that the same disparities are at play in both arenas and the same disconnect is at play in academia as well as in the rural communities and the access they have to getting research done in their communities and being part of that academic conversation. So I don't know if that's just a personal observation or if other people doing research in this area have noticed it, but that was something that I was frustrated with because I kind of expected there to be more answers. I feel like agriculture has become very scientific in our society and you think of industrial agriculture and how it's been so systemized. And I kind of expected that to be reflected in the resources I found, and I just didn't. So that also might speak to the lack of research on sustainable agriculture and small-scale practices. So I found that very interesting. And I also noticed in terms of more 
community and producer-oriented observations that every time a rancher does something, it's a decision and a trade-off to not do something else. And it made me just all the more appreciative of the time that these ranchers dedicated to participating in our research study, as well as just interviewing and meeting with me. And it put me back in my perspective of being from the city, being a young college student. And I realized how much I, how much knowledge and informal knowledge there is circulating within these communities. And I, that just, again, speaks to the interview process that there's knowledge that people have just in their brains that may not be reflected through papers. And I honestly gained a lot more through that than through the academic papers I was trying to look at as resources. And yeah, so I feel like those are two very broad takeaways, but they speak a lot to just the general things that are valued in American society and what is researched and what is not and where you see knowledge and where you don't was really fascinating to me. Absolutely. Very cool. I I love how you said that, Chase. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. (laughs) Chase, if I could bounce off of some of that, thank you so much for bringing up especially the, the gaps in support when it comes to how central our food systems are to society. And that was something I saw with my conversations and research and writing these white papers too, is that there are funding resources for these kinds of projects in terms of soil amendment, but not many. And then also, apart from these white papers, my own interest in sustainable agricultural business looked into what are there in terms of funding resources for regenerative agriculture as a whole and investing in soil health for large corporate supply chains. And there aren't a ton. Right now, there's a lot of interest in carbon capture. So people are trying to quantify the value of land and agriculture in terms of how much carbon it's able to capture. But I would really like to see the development of more financial support that relies on that generational knowledge that you mentioned, Chase, and also just the inherent value of food systems and validates those two things rather than looking to quantify well, this many more microbes lived in the soil when I did this, <laughs> um, or this much carbon was captured. Like there is inherent value that we must invest in if we want to see impactful change in our food systems, uh, whether that's ranching or growing vegetables or overall land stewardship. So I'm really glad, Chase, that you mentioned those gaps in support and how we are looking to academia to verify what people have known for generations, that it requires investing in soil health to see a good product. And that soil health is a complex thing that is is very contextual. I definitely agree with all of that. And I guess another thing I thought of that really displays the value of bridging academia and rural communities and ranchers is it will bridge the divide between environmentalists uh, as self-labeled environmentalists or policymakers or people that may operate in cities and maybe focus on more urban ideas of sustainability and don't see what happens in the rural West or even rural areas all over the country. And I think these conversations that are happening between ranchers and academics, just the interview process, 
are all ways of bridging that gap between the knowledge that is limited to small communities that leads to a misunderstanding often by urban dwellers about who is at fault for the climate issues we're facing and who is responsible for changing them because there are real barriers that people who even want to implement sustainable practices face. And one thing that made me really proud to work on this white paper is it was a written documentation of those limitations and the costs that are associated for real people who are operating real operations (laughs) and are running their own farms. And I think speaking as an urbanite, people don't really understand that all of our food doesn't come from these industrial agricultural conglomerates. A lot of our food does come from real producers still. And a lot of these people want to make real change and we're all on the same side. And I think that was something that was really valuable to me because I'm part of a lot of communities that don't really see that. And I haven't had the opportunity to see that until this internship. And it was very eye-opening. I feel like with these white papers, you're sort of just gathering information that's already out there instead of taking it from the ivory tower and smacking people in the face with it and being like, this is what we, this is what we now know is the best way to do things. Like I was just talking to some undergraduates um, last month at a conference and they were like, how do we teach farmers how to do sustainable practices? And I was like, I mean, that's a really, you have to be really careful with that question. And I think academia kind of trains people. Like if you have a degree, then you're ready to teach farmers how to do what they do. And I just looked at this kid and was like, you know, they've been doing this their whole lives. Like they have so much information that they've tried. And I think it's really important for us to apply all of this energy toward amplifying what works and supporting what works and what people already know, rather than just kind of like coming at people with this new idea and being like, why aren't you doing this? You know, so it, that's, I can, I, I admire that about this process that you guys were doing interviews and taking in that knowledge instead of just kind of like passing it down and hoping it works. And you know what one of the answers to why aren't you doing this is generally? Money. <laughs> a lot of times producers do not have the money to mostly pay the labor it requires to implement sustainable practices. So the Savory Institute, for example, has done some amazing work on uh, rotational grazing. Rotational grazing takes a lot of observation, a lot of people on the ground keeping track of large herds of cattle. <laughs> so I think it's just that's something really important for for undergraduates, for graduates, for urbanites, for everyone, any, anyone in policy to consider, what do we need to scale regenerative agriculture solutions is we need financing mechanisms. That's something I'm very passionate in, about and have found through this experience with Kuluvira, as well as some work just within the degree and also many other my colleagues who are fascinated with regenerative agriculture. So that's one message that I really want to underline, underscore, is that we need to develop funding mechanisms to support farmers. And if farmers want support implementing sustainable practices, they're going to need those funding mechanisms that can be there along the way. One thing I want to touch on before we kind of wrap up here is, so Chase, you're doing your undergrad 
Jesse, you're sort of in the graduate realm. So there's a quite a big age difference between you two. And it sounds like from our conversation before that there was sort of a mentorship developing between you two and this awesome kind of like big sister kind of relationship. Do you guys want, both want to speak to that and how that benefited this internship for you both? I've just, I've, if I can jump on in, I've loved working with Chase. I mean, we've only really gotten to work pretty much in the virtual realm, sadly, even though being only Colorado and New Mexico one day, we'll meet uh, in person, I'm sure. But it's been really fun to see like your perspective, Chase, and um, your inspiration with the degree you're getting now. And the, yeah, the perspective you bring of like, okay, yeah, I grew up in more of an urban setting, but I'm fascinated by how we can um, look at the intersection of policy and agriculture. I think that this is really, really wonderful, really great and really inspiring. And I look forward to crossing paths more in the future. At the receiving end of Jessie's mentorship, I don't think she quite understands how impactful it has been to just be guided by her. And I was always able to turn to her for help, even just reading over her white papers as an example of how to format mine. And she gave me examples of different tables and analyses I could add into mine. And having never done this before or had a real internship before, to be frank, it was really extremely helpful just to see someone who was working on just a slightly more intense version of what I was doing. And additionally, we have similar backgrounds and I see myself going into grad school for the humanities and sustainability in the next few years. We're both from liberal arts colleges, very small schools that are not huge research institutions. So coming into the research realm from that perspective, it was really helpful to have someone else who isn't focused on the science of it and is focused on the humanities side of things was really helpful. And even just professionally, academically, it gives me a path to see like what could I do in the next five years? And it has helped just jumpstart my thinking to that in the post-grad world as I explore that. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap up, but I would love to hear from each of you sort of what is your advice for the next Kivera intern and what is next for you? Advice I would have for future interns at Kivera is don't have imposter syndrome because we all go through a rigorous application process and you deserve to be here and be part of this team. And everyone expects you to be learning. Even if you don't know a lot about ranching or the specifics of your project, you're going to learn it. And it's that's part of the process, even for full-time employees at Covira, is constantly learning and becoming experts on this topic. And just trust the more soft skills that you have to be able to compile something that's effective and work effectively with your coworkers and teammates. And then what's next for me, I'm currently brainstorming my senior thesis. I will take a lot of the knowledge I gained from this internship with Kuvira as I brainstorm the topics and the research strategies and the analysis that the entire process actually of forming this project, I'm, I'm going to use in writing this passion project of mine in the coming year and I hope to focus on rural development and ranching in Colorado and find some other great researchers that can support me on that process. Well, Chase, you'll have to keep us updated with that thesis. I will. I will. 
Advice I would give to future interns would be approach with curiosity and then more curiosity and then more curiosity. (laughs) Don't spend your time on imposter syndrome. (laughs) It's important even for experts or anyone designated as an expert with a degree, a PhD, years of experience to always approach projects like these with curiosity. I think that is the most important strength and thing anyone can bring to the table and something that the whole Quivira team has. It's been a real pleasure getting to know everyone at Quivira and learning what everyone's experience is and how everyone's gotten to be at the Quivira table Um, and seeing the team work with our whole wide variety of stakeholders. Everybody centers curiosity and that's been a lot of fun to be in that kind of holding environment of an organization. So advice is apply, be curious, have fun. (laughs) And um, in terms of what's next for me, I have one semester left of my MBA. So hoping to put my whole self into that and then hopefully graduate with a job on the horizon. So fingers crossed. Awesome. And where can folks find these white papers? When will they be released and how can they find them? I believe we'll have them on the Quivira website last time I heard. And most likely it will be in in the same page as uh, where we have our technical guides. Anyone who's listening who hasn't already been directed to our technical guide webpage, part of the Quivira website, it's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah, compost, biochar, Some of the tech guides are in Spanish even, so um, I suspect that's where those will be. And if not there, maybe also within our newsletter. All right, right on. Well, folks, yeah, I can't stress enough like that technical guide page. Every time I go there, I'm like, oh gosh, this is a dangerous, like I could be there for hours. (laughs) There's so much amazing free information that is so place-based. It's free. Yeah, it's free. I, I'm always like, how is this? This is amazing. So yeah, if folks haven't checked out that page, highly recommend. Keep an eye out for both these white papers. Thank you so much to Jesse and Chase for being on the podcast today. Wish you both the best of luck in the rest of your internship, the rest of your schooling, and I hope to see you around. Thanks, Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to connect to the broader Kivir community of ranchers, farmers, conservation and government agency professionals, educators, nature nerds, curious consumers, and more, we're excited to have you. Our website is kiviracoalition.org, and in the upper right, click on Get eNews to sign up for our newsletter, where we share happenings and events, learning opportunities, job postings, and more. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review and a rating. It really will help other people find us and maybe even find their next step in regenerative agriculture. Thanks so much and see you next time. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd like to thank Kavira staff for their contributions to this podcast. 
This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. And we're grateful for our guests taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land. Thank you.